Praise the Lord. God is good. And so, uh, great things all the time. God is good. Uh, great things. I think we have like 17 different states that watch, that tune in each uh, each week. So, uh, praise praise the Lord. I'm going to sit part of the time because I'll you'll I'm going to I'm going to read a story and you'll you'll get the gist of it. Um, we have a really good friend named John, John and Michelle Nuzo, pastor, a really cool church up on the north side of Pittsburgh. Um, I don't know the name of the church right now, but a really cool, big growing church. He planted it 30 years ago. They have some Pittsburgh Steelers in their, uh, in their congregation. And just it's a really, really cool people. They're really, really good pastors. And uh, uh, we had him preach down here 12 years ago on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And uh, John wore, as he did in his church, uh, he wore a Ben Roethlisberger jersey. Uh, and it's Jersey uh, Sunday. Uh, thank you again, Carly, for the the, the um, idea uh, of restoring it. But John wore a Pittsburgh Steelers jersey on a Friday night when he preached. Uh, and he wore it in his church. And at the time, Ben Roethlisberger, who had been a two-time Super Bowl champion, had let... Um, Maybe celebrity gets his head just a little bit. He wasn't married. He was kind of a carouser. He did some things. And got a suspension from the NFL for either four or six games. I mean, just a lot of stuff going on in his life. Not all of them uh, very good. And and when he uh, when John wore his jersey. Uh, ben Roethlisberger was right in the middle of all that stuff, and he thought maybe his church might even take it just a little awkward and just a little little harsh, uh, and he said this, and, and, and really a profound statement, and I want you to grab it because some of you might be in this place. Uh, John said in our church, John said in his church while he was wearing uh, Ben Roethlisberger's jersey that Jesus will wear your jersey even when no, no one else will, and you need to know that. Some people here might need to know, hey, nobody, nobody sides with me. Nobody's on my team. Jesus is on your team. Jesus loves you. Jesus will wear your jersey. And the things that my understanding that uh, when Roethlisberger was going through those things, it actually uh, brought him to the cross where he uh, confessed his sins and became a Christ follower from that moment on. And so good things can happen. But listen, we sometimes we think we're in this battle all alone. We're not. Jesus is your friend. Jesus is your savior. Jesus is your, your king. Jesus is the one who loves you. And that's a good and mighty thing. Amen. So he'll wear your jersey even when nobody else will. And so we, we're, we're wearing jerseys today, and that's not the only reason, but that's a good reason. So we're going to come out of Song of Songs, Song of Solomon to start with, and then we'll go into Luke. Song of Solomon's uh, is a song that Solomon wrote that you can relate to then your walk with Christ, your love relationship with God, which uh, February is kind of the love month with Valentine's coming up. Oh, by the way, I need, your, I need you to help me with this uh, scenario. I don't know for sure uh, to buy Janie a dozen roses or a dozen eggs. They each cost the same. So maybe you can, you, egg, eggs. Janie says, buy the eggs. Uh, love. Solomon wrote on love, okay, but God loves us. So we'll start with Song of Songs would be the appropriate name rather than Song of Solomon, Song of Psalms, which is kind of our sermon series title for the month. We'll start there and we'll jump over to Luke. Uh, you who dwell in the gardens, that would be us, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. This is just God speaking to us. Say, all right, Lord, I want to hear your voice today. What do you have for me? As this is the very last verse of the book of Song of Solomon. Then we go over to Luke, the 10th chapter. Uh, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. In other words, everything that you have, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. And the attorney said, but he desiring to justify himself. And sometimes we do that, church. Sometimes we want to justify ourselves. Well, it's okay if I 
jump the line. It's okay if I squeeze that person out. It's okay if I don't look at them the same way I might look at somebody else, somebody that wears my team jersey. It's okay if, if I look at them that way and, and, and look down at them at that way because they're, they're wearing the wrong colors. Jesus says, in, uh, and he said, desiring to justify himself to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for truth. Thank you today, Lord, and ask that you'd open our hearts, Father, to hear, to read, and to understand everything that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen. And so you know the story. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. This is the story that uh, Jesus uh, tells to this attorney and to the other people that are in his midst. That there was, a good, there, was a good, there was a day where a man came and he got beat up and he went basically left for dead. And then because he was left for dead, uh, different people came walking by. And the first one was a priest. And the priest came walking by and he didn't have time for the, uh, the, the man who, who was beat up. So he crossed over the other side of the street. And then a Levite came of the priesthood, of the house of the Levites. And he came and he looked across the street and there was a person there that was uh, beat up and left for dead. And so he crossed over the street too. He didn't want to get involved. It wasn't, just wasn't, he didn't have the time for that. And then there was a Samaritan, a, a half-breed, not accepted by the Jews, not accepted by any of the tribes of Israel, not accepted even by the, the Samaritans. They were, they were just, just kind of loners. They were out and about. And he came by and he rescued the man. He put him on his donkey or mule or whatever and took him to a, a local inn and he paid the, the cost for a couple nights and said, whatever, uh, whatever bills that he accrues, I'll take care of when I, when I come back through. He used everything that he had, his power too. And then Jesus tells his story, this is, this, is, this is your neighbor. I'd read a lot of books so far already this year, for me anyways. I think I'd read 13 different books, not, not including my daily Bible reading. But one of the best books I think I've read so far is a book that Janie gave me a couple of weeks ago. She was telling me the story, uh, and I thought, I, I, I need to read that whole book to the church if I can. And she said, yeah, she, said, she read it to her her Sunday school class, little Salo's class, and, and they were locked and loaded like their, their eyes were just pierced. And it, it's a simple story, but it's a, it's a story of, of loving your neighbor and, and finding out who your neighbor is. And so uh, this morning, I'm going to read out of the, the, the Gospel of the Bernstein Bears. I hope you'll indulge me for a few moments. It takes about seven or eight minutes to read. Janie said to slow down the first service downtown. I read it too fast, but I want to read it to you today so that you can kind of understand that maybe the um, kindergarten or first grade level, uh, the simplicity of what God means when he says, love your neighbor. Their bear family was quite proud of their handsome treehouse home. They worked hard to keep it neat and tidy. The trim was freshly painted. The front steps were scrubbed and the windows were washed. The lawn was mowed and the flower beds were weeded. Even the leaves of the trees were carefully trimmed and clipped. Most of their neighbors took care of their homes as well. The pandas across the street were even bigger neatniks than the bears. It seemed they were always at hard at work sweeping and cleaning. Farmer Ben's farm down the road was always in apple pie order too. Even his chicken coop was neat as a pin, a place for everything in, everything in its place. That's my motto, said Farmer Ben. The Bear family had a few neighbors whose houses were positively fancy, like Mayor Honeypot the Bear, who rode around Bear Town in his long lavender limousine. His house was three stories tall and built of brick. He had a big brass knock around the front door and statues of flamingos on the front lawn. Even more impressive was the mansion of Squire Grizzly, the richest bear in all bear country. It stood on a hill surrounded by acres of lawns and gardens, dozens of servants and gardeners took care of the place. The bear family was proud of their neighborhood, and they got along well with all their neighbors, except for the Bog brothers. 
The Bach brothers lived in a run-down old shack not far from Bear family's treehouse, but what a difference. Their roof was caving in and the whole place leaned to one side. There was junk all over the yard, chickens, dogs, and cats running everywhere. A big pig swallowed in the mud out back. Those Bog brothers' mama would say whenever she saw them, they're a disgrace to our neighborhood. Yes, agreed Papa, they certainly are a problem. One bright spring morning, the Bear family was working outside, cleaning up and fixing up, and the Bog brothers came along. They were driving their broken-down old jalopy. It made a terrific clanking racket. As they drove past the treehouse, one of the Bog brothers spit out the card, nearly missed the Bear's mailbox. Really, said Mama, shocked. Those Bog brothers are a disgrace. I agree, said Papa, getting the mail out of the mailbox. I'm afraid they're just not very good neighbors. Papa looked through the mail and found a big yellow flyer all rolled up. He opened it and showed it to the rest of the family. Oh, boy, said sister and brother. It's like a big block party. Can we go? It certainly sounds like fun, said Mama. What do you think, Papa? Everyone in town will be there, said Papa. We ought to go, too. Yeah, cried the cubs. It was fireworks and bear town festivals and come join the games and the food and have fun. So on Saturday morning, they all piled up in their car. They had a picnic basket and folding chairs. They were looking forward to a day of fun and excitement. But as they drove along, the car began making a funny sound. It started out as a pockety-pock, pockety-pock-bot, and soon delved into a, a pockety-wheeze, pockety-wheeze, as they rode down the road. Oh, dear, said Mama. What is that awful sound the car is making? Just then, the car made a much worse sound, a, a loud clunk. It came to a sudden halt, and the radiator cap flew off, and all they all climbed out, and Papa opened the hood, and... I guess it's overheated, said Papa, waving to the cloud of steam with his hat. Oh, no, said Sister. How are we going to make it to the Bear Town Festival? Maybe someone will stop and give us a hand, said Papa. Hopefully. Look, here comes a car. Let's all wave. Maybe they will stop. It was Mayor and Mrs. Honeypot on their long lavender limousine. They were on their way to the festival, too. Their car slowed down, but it didn't stop. The mayor leaned his head out of the window. Sorry, we can't stop, he said. We're late already. I'm master of ceremonies today. I've got to be there on time. I'm sure someone will stop to help you. And he pulled away with a squeal of his tires. Hmm, said Papa. Maybe someone else will come along. Soon another car did come along. It was Squire and Lady Grizzly being driven to the festival in their big black Grizz Royce. They slowed down too. Lady Grizzly rolled down her window. I'm afraid we can't stop, she said. We don't have time. I'm the judge of the flower arranging contest. We'll simply must hurry. And with that, they pulled away. Maybe no one is going to stop, said Sister. Maybe we're never going to get to the festival. One of our neighbors is sure to stop and help us, said Mama. After all, that's what neighbors are for. Yeah, said Brother, but do they know that? A cloud of dust appeared down the road. Here comes someone now, Sister said eagerly. The dust cloud grew closer as they could hear a clackety-rackety getting louder. Oh, no, said Papa, shading his eyes and peering down the road. If that's who I think it is, it was. It was the Bog Brothers. They came clanking up in their rickety old jalopy and screeched to a halt. First one, then another, then another. The Bog Brothers came climbing out of their car. Howdy, said the first Bog Brother. Hello there, said Papa. I'm Lim, said the Bog Brother. I can see you're having some trouble with your vehicle. Well, yes, we are, said Papa. Maybe we can give you a, a hand, said Lim. That would be very neighborly of you, said Papa. Hey, Clem. Hey, Shim, called Lim. Get your rope out. The other two Bog brothers rooted around the back of the jalopy and came up with a length of rope. They hitched it to the back bumper of their car and tied the other end around the front bumper of the bear's car. All aboard, said Lim. The bear family climbed hastily back into their car, and the Bog brothers pulled away, towing the cars behind them. Where are they taking us, said Mama. Papa shrugged. At least we're moving. Brother and sister hoped the Bog brothers weren't taking them down to their old shack. They didn't want to meet that big old pig. Soon they pulled into a run-down old filling station. Someone who looked like an older version of the Bog Brothers came out. Hello, Uncle Zeke, said Lim. Hello, nephew, said Uncle Zeke. What can I do you for? These poor folks broke down on the road, said Lim. You reckon you can fix them up? Let's take a look, said Uncle Zeke. He looked down under the car's hood, banged and clanged around, and came up with a length of burnt hose, burst hose. Radiator, he said. 
hoses broken, busted clean wide open. I should have another one of them around here somewhere. His Uncle Zeke rummaged around behind the building, filling station, and soon came back with a radiator hose. He banged and clanged under the hood for a few more minutes. There, he said, wiping his hand, good as new. We'll top off the radiator, and you folks will be on your way. Thank you very much, said Papa. Relieved, he shook hands with Uncle Zeke and the Bog Brothers. Thank you, said Mama, brother and sister. Honey Bear waved. How much do we owe you, asked Papa, reaching for his wallet. Nothing, said Lim. This is one's on us. After all, we're all neighbors, aren't we? That's right, said Mama with a gulp. We are. In fact, how would you neighbors like to come over our house for dinner next week? Papa, brother, sister all stared at Mama with their mouths wide open. That's right, neighborly of you, said Lim. Don't mind if we do. Shim's cooking has been getting a bit tiresome lately. Too much possum stew. We were on our way to the Bear Town Festival, said Papa. Would you like to join us? Sure would, said Lim. We ain't been to a big shindig since Grandpa's 90th birthday parties. So the Bear family drove to the Bear Town with the Bog Brothers and Uncle Zeke. They were a little late, but they hadn't missed much, just Mayor Honeypot's welcoming speech. They all joined in the games, rides, and contests. When it was time for fireworks, the Bog Brothers livened things up with some music of their own. The next week, the Bog Brothers came over to the Bears' treehouse for dinner. They wore their best clothes and got all spruced up for the occasion. They even brought a housewarming gift, a big pot of Shim's special possum stew. It was delicious. I wonder if maybe in your neighborhood or life, you might have a bog brother. Maybe they don't live down the street. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone who is close to you or distant because of the way they act or the things that they do. Maybe it's someone on the job side or the workplace or someone you drive by and you wish they would clean, literally clean their yard up or how could they act like that? But we never do know the backstory, do we? We never for sure know what maybe made or got someone to that place. But as we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan and as we see in the Bog Brothers and the Burdenstein Love Their Neighbors book, that we really can't judge a book by its cover, can we? We can't really look at someone and say, well, that's how they are. Or if they don't wear our teen jersey or if they don't look like us, how can we ever accept them into our fold or into our company or into our neighborhood or into our business? If they don't look like us or smell like us or act like us or become us, we don't accept people as readily and easily as maybe we should. I was about 26 or 27 years old, and uh, I had gotten a job at a company that my brother, Michael, had worked for. Michael is 11 years older than I am. He deceased. He's been deceased now for almost 10 years, and he was a good, hard worker. He liked to go out for a few beers with the guys after work and maybe golf with them two or three times a week. And uh, he had left the company, moved out of the area. And when I got the job, based on his recommendation and reference, uh, the person managing uh, the company was the same one that managed when Michael was there. He hired me, and I think he thought maybe I was going to be a duplicate of my brother Michael. And so, whereas when I was done with the with the job, I'd go home, and Janie and I'd go to church or go to prayer meeting, and I didn't go out with the guys and do different things. Um, his name was Don. Don Don looked differently towards me, and I'd be honest with you, I looked differently towards Don as well. And Don was kind of mean. It was a 100% commission route sales job, and he dictated and controlled a lot of times if you made good money or not. And I made pretty good money on the job. It wasn't like I could just quit and go find another one. Jobs weren't as plentiful then as they are today, 35 years ago. And so I kept the job, worked hard on it, and uh, tried to do my best. But he was he would give uh, to a different, couple different guys, he would give uh, new accounts to. And the city of Omaha would buy paper products from our company. And the, the sales commission on those were through the roof. You had a really, really good week if, if you were part of the, the paper team. And I never got those paper sales. I never got the new accounts. And I was working. And my father-in-law, who was our pastor at the time, preached the message, which is a little bit further on in the scripture here, where Jesus says to pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute 
persecute you, do all manner of evil against you for his namesake. And I felt like Don didn't like me because I was a, a Christ follower. I was a, a believer. And, and I, I'm going to say maybe I gave him some reason not to. I don't know. We, we didn't talk. We didn't have good relationship. And so I would go in the morning. Uh, one morning I had to go to, the, I had to go to the, the plant at 315 to load my truck and go out of town and come back in the next day. But the other three mornings I'd go to church and pray at 5 o'clock. And then it was part of my, just my ritual. I'd been doing it since I was about 23 years old or so. And now I'm 26 or 27. So I did three or four years into it. I'd go in and pray to the Lord. And a uh, pastor had preached to pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. And so I'd start praying for Don. And for two or three weeks, I, I prayed, uh, Lord, would you kill Don? I did. Or, or at least fire him. Could you, could you just get rid of Don Stone? He, he's a nemesis to me. He hates me. And I, and I just, I, I just, I can't, he like, it makes me hard to go to work. Lord, would you just get rid of him for me? I mean, David prayed that prayer, and, and God wiped out complete armies. Why, why can't I pray that prayer? And I would go to early morning prayer meeting, and uh, after a while, I wouldn't feel the presence of God. I was like, God, I'm coming to prayer. What's going on? He said, I think the Holy Spirit said, I think you know, Mark, what's wrong. I, I don't know what's wrong. I'm, I'm praying for those who despitefully use me and persecute me for your namesake. God, I need you to fire or kill Don Stone. And, and the Holy Spirit said, think of what you just said. So you, want me, you, want, you want me to kill or, or fire somebody? I said, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. So I tried to be creative with my prayer, and I, I'd go home and I'd think about it. I'd read the scripture. So then I went back to early morning prayer, and Don was still being mean to me. And I said, all right, Lord, uh, it's, it's, it's December or January, February, and in Omaha, Nebraska, it's five below outside. Give Don a better job and move, move him to Florida or somewhere. Just give him a pay increase, give him a blessing, move him to Florida, and then I don't have to deal with him anymore. And so I prayed that way for several weeks as well. And then after a couple weeks, three weeks, even a month, I, I didn't feel the presence of God in my prayer time. Lord, what's going on? I'm praying. I'm praying for those who despitefully use me and persecute me, and I'm not praying that he dies anymore. I'm just praying that you move him. Give him a better job in Florida or somewhere. Just, just bless his socks off. That way I don't have to deal with him. See, I think sometimes when we pray for people, we pray for people because we don't want to deal with their issues. It's easier if God would just clean them up, then we don't have to deal with them. Proverbs says where there are no oxen, the stall stays clean. And so if I don't have to deal with that dirty mess, then I can move, I can move forward. And the Lord really started to move in my spirit. And he, and he said, son, you're, not, you're still not praying right. You're praying that God blesses Don and gives him a better job and moves him to Florida, but you're doing that so it's easier for you. And the Lord started to break me down. And, and I was young, going through some external issues in myself and just different stuff. And it feels like all these, you know, things are against me. And Don's not giving me any new accounts. And he's not giving me the paper run. And, and so after, and this is now months later into this. I'm, I'm praying, Lord, would you, would you soften my heart towards Don Stone? Would you, would you change my heart so that I can see him differently? So I can see him like you see him. And my heart started to change. And my, my, my view of Don started to change from this evil guy who had his favorites inside the company and wouldn't give me uh, the, the, the better routes or the better business and wouldn't give me the paper route to, God, would you, would you save Don Stone? Would you heal Don Stone? Would you, whatever was going on in Don's life, I don't know what makes him mean and angry towards me, but would you, would you help him, not change him? Or would you change me? Would you change my vision of who Don is in, in the kingdom? And, and as I started to change, Don started to change. And as I started to soften, Don started to soften. 
And as I started to, to walk in the plan, I, I took a new attitude of rather than avoiding Don and not having to deal with his mess and his arrogance and all that, I, I started to have conversation with him. Don, how, how are you doing? How was your weekend? How'd you golf over the weekend? How, how are things going? And we, we started to have this, this conversation back and forth, and I could see him soften, and I was softening, and together we were softening, and it, it was like God was breaking me down, and as he broke me down, he was breaking Don Stone down. And, and it was an amazing thing, and, and, you, and you might be thinking, Pastor, I get that, but no, I'm thinking of the person in your life who might be your neighbor who you completely disregard. I'm thinking about the person that maybe carries a little sign on the, on the, on the sidewalk with cardboard writing on, it, writing on it that, hey, they need some help or they need some food or they need some money. Or the person in the workplace who you know that they're, they're running around and their spouse and not doing things right or, or they're corrupt and evil. Is that your neighbor? Is that the person that God wants you to be soft in chores, not start to act like. I didn't start acting like Don. I started to pray for Don, and before long, he started giving me a couple accounts. And I wasn't praying for him so I could have more money. I was praying for him. Remember, I prayed for him to die. And I prayed for him, God, just move him to Florida and give him a, a pay raise, give him a better job. But now I'm praying for his soul. I'm praying for his spirit. I'm praying for uh, the opportunity for me to be soft towards him. And he, he started giving me some accounts. He even gave me the paper run a couple times, and the checks were always really good when I got the paper run because the commission was amazing on him, and we were getting along, and it's about six months later, and things are going really good. And Don came up to me and said, hey, I, I want to tell you something. I, I had a couple EKGs, and my, they're, they're doing some heart tests on me. And I said, do you mind if I pray with you and pray for you? And he said, no, actually, that, that's why I came up for you. Would you? Would you, would you mind, you know, saying a few prayers or um, saying an extra prayer for me? And I said, Don, I'll pray for you every morning when I go to church and pray. He said, I appreciate it, man. He confided in me in some health issues. And, and then he came up about a month after that. He said, hey, I want to I tell you something, Mark. I said, yeah, what's that? He said, you're nothing like your brother. I said, well, I know that. And nothing, not that either one is bad or either one is good. I am who I am. He is who he is. And so I want to tell you, I really appreciate your friendship. I said, well, thank you, Don. I appreciate the boss you've become. You always were. I just, I, I needed to change. He said, no. He said, I really needed to change, and I have. He said, but I got some good slash bad news. I said, what's that? He said, oh, I'm leaving the company. I said, you are. He said, yeah, and my heart kind of sunk within me. I said, you are. He said, yeah. I got a good job offer in Florida, and I'm going to take it. <laughs> True story. <laughs> I said, no. He said, and I didn't have the heart to tell him. My middle prayer was that you'd get blessed and move to Florida. I said, wow, I'm going to miss you, Don. Enjoy Florida. He said, oh, I will. And by the way, my heart issues are all better. Thanks for praying. So I got a couple of questions for you. One, who's your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Well, I'll tell you what, what Jesus says. I don't think, do we don't, these side screens aren't working for me here, and I don't know if we can change those. John 13, 34, and 35 says this, a new commandment I give you, that, I have, that you have loved one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So how do we, we're taking a discipleship class, and, and by the way, we had like 85 people show up to be discipled Wednesday night, and, and we're, we're still open for more. More people can come and join if you want. Uh, but how do we know that, how, what's like the number one thing to be a disciple of Christ is to love each other, to love one another. So who's your neighbor? Who's that person in your life that maybe does just rub you the wrong way. Maybe it's a, a boss or a fellow employee. Maybe it's a client or someone that you have to call on or, or work with. But who's your neighbor? Who, who is your neighbor? Let's put that back up there. Who's your neighbor? Think about that for a moment. Your neighbor isn't the person that you go out to eat with or vacation with. And those, those are good stuff. You need those people in your life. It's not the person you go to lunch with because you get along with them on your job. It's not the person that, that you can hang out with or text or call if you have a problem. 
And Jesus is telling us, church, that our neighbor is the person that maybe we think contrary to. Like Don Stone was my neighbor in my life, and the Lord showed me some unbelievable things in that little scenario. That when I was praying for him to die or get fired, when I was praying him for him to move and, and be blessed, those were still very selfish prayers. But when I started praying, Lord, let me see that person like you see that person. It became a different scenario for me. So I want to just ask you to take five seconds and just think, who's my neighbor? Who's the one person or the type of person? Maybe it's not an individual with a name. Maybe it's a type of person. Maybe it's a, a people group that you just don't like. Maybe we're very biased or prejudiced against somebody or some way. But as a grace church, with the name grace in it, we need to be a people group that says, hey, we love you because you're God's creation. And now let's work through this thing together. Who's your neighbor? Second of all, what side of the street will you walk on? What, what side of the street are, are you on? So are you the type of person that's going to cross over the street because that person's got a drug a problem or an addiction or that problem looks or thinks or acts or dresses differently than you? Are you going to be the person that goes on that side of the street? Are you going to be the person that crosses over to the side of the street that says, hey, I want to be your friend Scripture says this in Romans 12 and 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I mean, that seems like Paul's giving us a charge to actually be able to compete with each other, but not in a Super Bowl status, not where hundreds of millions. I saw on the paper this past week, $26 billion will be uh, wagered on the Super Bowl today. 26, and how much have you got? A lot, Drew? All of it? Drew's, Drew's wagering all of it. <laughs> he's, he's all in. $26 billion on the Super Bowl. What if just 10% of that money was wagered on homeless or sick or underprivileged or people that didn't look or act or think like we thought? He says, outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, outdo the person that is trying to love their neighbor like themselves, who loves God with everything, but they can't stand people God created. What if we changed our heart? What if we changed our spirit to say, okay, God, man, they, they, they may not love you because they may not know you, and they may not know you because they don't see you in other people. But if God's... If, if people see God in each of us, if they see the love of Jesus in every single one of us, and we outdo each other in giving honor, not because we want to win some big reward at the end of the day, but because we simply want to make sure we're walking on the right side of the street, walking on the side of the street that Jesus would walk on. What side of the street will you walk on? And last but not least, what, what matters? What matters to you? Let's read the rest of the story out of Luke 10, 36 and 37. Jesus said, which of these three do you think? Is it the priest? Is it the Levite or the Samaritan? Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the attorney said, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now we're told to do three things in scriptures. The first one, we're, we're called to go make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. We're told to make disciples so that we have to learn how to be a good disciple before we can make disciples, right? And if we're told to make disciples, then that means all people everywhere, not just our little niche, our clique group, our, our club, or our people. Now, again, that's a good place to start. You should start with your family. You should start with your friends and neighbors, but it may go beyond that. So we're called to make disciples. We're also called to go out and heal the sick and pray for them. We're, we're, we're called to lay our hands on the sick. We're called to raise the dead. We're, we're called to believe, to move mountains by faith. We're called to do that. But then we're also called here to do likewise, to love the unlovable, to love the unreachable, to love those who maybe have made horrible decisions in their life. Or in my case, Don Stone was making good money. He was running a company. He was doing well. I just could not stand him to the point where I literally prayed, God, would you just take him out? I'm ashamed to say that now. 
But I was fervently praying. I mean, I was in my prayer time. I was at 5 o'clock in the morning at the house of our church on 24th Vinton praying that God would kill this guy. <laughs> or maybe you've prayed that prayer too. Not so much like I did. God, just kill him. Take him out. But, Lord, if you could just. And then I prayed that God would bless him. Lord, if you would just. And then I finally prayed. Lord, would you change me towards Don? And maybe that's how we need to pray today. Lord, would you change me as I want you to change the Don Stones in my life? Simple message. Pastor, that's not earth-shattering. None of the gospel is earth-shattering if you're obedient. Bring a tie to the storehouse is not earth-shattering. It's just obedience. Loving my neighbor is not earth-shattering, it's just obedience. Well, who's my neighbor? That's what we ask. Then we become the arrogant attorney. Well, who's my neighbor? Anybody God puts in your way is your neighbor. Janie, I'd given all of our team a different book to read, and I gave Janie the, the, the Gift of Influence. It's a really good book written by Tommy Spaulding and uh, has great, I always read who who looks at the back? Who does the thing? And Ken Blanchard, a guy that I read a lot, was, was one of the, the people that wrote a little thing on it. And, and so uh, I gave it to her, and there was a really cool story in there that I wanted her to, to share with the church. And she said, no, you, you read the story and you tell it. And so I'll tell the, the church a true story about a teacher named Miss Wright. Uh, 1962, she was a 30-year-old teacher, not married and uh, she was teaching her math class uh, to eighth graders. Well, those of you who teach, you know, eighth graders can be a little rambunctious. And it was the end of the day, and it was the last class of the day, and it was the last class before spring break. And so the kids were just a little bit sideways, okay? They were, a couple kids were in the back wrestling, and other kids were passing notes, and a little girl named Betty had some bags under her eyes. She was always teared up. Her mom and dad were going through a divorce, and it was just a bad situation. And so so Miss Wright thought she would do something entirely different uh, on this particular day. And she told all the kids, because the, the subject of the day was hypotenuse triangles, and she thought, how am I going to teach them hypotenuse triangles on the last class of the day, the day before spring break? It's not going to happen. Shut all your math books and put them in your book bags. And the class was like, oh, yeah, Miss Wright, you're our favorite teacher. The kids don't necessarily like to learn, but they want to learn. And so they put their books away. She said, grab a piece of paper and tear it out. And so the, as they did, she said, write down the name of every uh, one of your classmates here in this class. There was 36 kids in the class. It was a big class. And so every person, they wrote their name at the top of the page, and then they wrote down the names of every uh, person in their class. And then she said, think of something good to say about that person. Maybe it could be something that you like about them. You know, Gina's got a nice smile. Janie's got a beautiful attitude. Andrew's got nice hair, whatever. You know, you just write those things. It takes after Papa. Write something nice down, or you could even write something like you think they're going to become a doctor or a lawyer. Or just write something nice about them and then, uh, then hand it in. And it took them the rest of the class period. They 35 names, they're 36, they're writing down something really nice. This person's funny, this person's kind, this person's a good athlete, they like sports, all those things. And then Miss Wright collected them all at the end of the uh, day, and they all went on the spring break. And then over spring break, she took 36 people pieces of paper and wrote the person's name at the top of all 36 uh, pages, different ones, and then wrote what their classmates said about them. They're funny, they're kind, they're pretty, they got a good smile, whatever the case may be. And so she had 1,260 entries over spring break that she wrote down about her classmates for them. And so then at the end of spring break, she gave them this piece of paper that had their name on it, like Fultz on the top. And, and on the side, then it said, whatever all of his classmates said, well, you're big, you're strong, you work out, you're a good drummer, all those things. And then she went back to teaching about hypotenuse triangles. 
in eighth grade class. They were freshmen in high school, ninth graders the next year. So she did. She lost touch with them. The next class came through. It was a, kind of a one-day exercise. She hadn't done it any other times. It was just those things. And that was 62. And 69-70, the Vietnam conflict became full bore. Americans were over there hot and heavy. They were in it. Some of her kids, her students, went off to college. Some of them went off to the war. Some of them went to trade school. Some of them, you know, started their different careers. And so she noticed in the paper, uh, local paper, that one of her former students had uh, died in the war in Vietnam. And uh, the parents had called her and said, would you mind coming to, the, to the, the memorial service? And she thought that was odd. She had lost touch with the student, but sure, she would be honored too. So she came to the memorial service, and, and there was nice things saying. And then at the end of the service, the parents said, hey, a few of the students are going to come over to our house. Would you, would you mind? Maybe you could reconnect a little bit. And she said, sure. And so she came, went over to the parents' house, and the kids had all pretty much stayed in touch. There's this group, the, one of the wrestlers that was fighting uh, was there, and the note passers were there that were uh, playing, you know, passing notes back and forth, and uh, even Betty was there, and she had grown to be a strong young woman in college, and things were going good, and so Miss Wright was standing off to the side, seeing the kids' uh, conversation back and forth, and she was so excited and glad for them, and yet sorrow inside that one of her students had fallen in the war, and the dad came by and said, hey, uh, could I show you something for a moment? And she said, sure, and so he went down the hallway and, and showed him uh, his son's room, and over in the corner, was a single bed with a Nebraska Cornhusker comforter on the bed. I thought, well, that was kind of cool. Uh, go Huskers. And on the bed was his military helmet. Oh, she just got so emotional and just thought, wow, what an honor. You know, a fallen soldier uh, fighting in a war, a conflict, whatever you, you're allowed to say. And, and so the dad picked up the military helmet and inside the right here, the forehead, there's a, there was a pad, and underneath the pad, there was a folded up piece of paper that had been folded and unfolded and folded and unfolded. And the dad pulled that out and gave it to Miss Wright, and right away she knew what it was. It was the piece of paper that she had given that young man seven or eight years before that on what his classmates thought of him. You're strong, you're courageous, got a good smile. You're a good athlete. The dad said, I can't tell you how many times he had unfolded that paper when things were going tough and then folded it back up, unfolded it, folded it back up. He took that wherever he went. And the dad, just on a whim with the other students in the room, said, does anybody here still have their paper? And one of the girls said, yeah, I've got it in a scrapbook. I put it in my scrapbook. I look at it periodically. Another one said, I have it in my dresser drawer at home. And another one said, yeah, I, I keep it in my billful. And Betty was there, and she pulled it out of her purse and said, I never leave home without this piece of paper. Miss Wright, you'll never know the difference that you made in my life when I was going through a hard, hard time. As the worship team comes back, I want you to Ask yourself, what matters? What, what, what matters most? Is it if we get our way or if we help someone get their way? If we're the neighbor that God can count on just to speak a kind word into somebody's life. It was simply a note that wrote down, that changed the way these five or six or seven people lived their life over the next seven or eight years, knowing they could become what somebody else thought the best of them. You know how eighth graders are. You know how middle schoolers are. We have kids downstairs from grades, what, fifth or sixth through tenth or eleventh, and, and they're, they're trying to figure out life. They're not a nuisance. They're not in the way. They are a gift from God. Your neighbor's not a nuisance. They're not in the way. They are a gift from God. The people that God is bringing down your path might be the one that God wants you to make a neighbor out of. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. Contemplate one more time. What matters? You know, Don Stone didn't matter to me until God showed me that Don Stone mattered to God. Miss Wright was doing a 
a lesson just to keep kids busy until the spring break could take place, but yet it was a life-changing event for six or seven or eight of those kids. The Bog Brothers, yeah, it's a cute story, Pastor. Kind of a time waster, not at all. You missed the whole point if that's the case. Who's the Bog Brother in your life? Who's the neighbor in your life? Who's the Don Stone in your life that God is trying to get to through you? Close your eyes and meditate for a moment while I pray. We're going to worship, and while we worship during this next song, I want you just to contemplate, Lord, who's my neighbor? And who can I be a good Samaritan to? Who can I be a misright to? Who's the Don Stone that I need to pray for? Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you. We offer this to you today. Simple, simple, Father. But sometimes we only look at neighbors as people that matter to us when others matter to you. Open that door so we can see all the way you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I got a friend closer than a with me. 
joining us for today's service. If God is impacting your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by investing today. You can give at www.gracechurch.tv give or by downloading the app and select give. We can't wait to see you next week.